today, this uh, session that we're going to have is going to be on uh, an experience in the Song of Solomon as it relates to our life in God. And I want to share with you some of my personal experiences. Again, this um, this first introductory session is, is very personal to myself and my wife and family. and so. But I think these uh, personal experiences are important to understand um, as we get into a greater picture of what it means for this awakening to happen uh, for the heavenly sons. I want to start out by going over, as, as my family and I, as we picked up out of this last podcast that we did about Obadiah, that something really interesting started to take place in our life in the book of the Song of Song of Solomon. And in an effort to explain this, what started to happen is we, we started to have these encounters with the Lord related to every verse of, of that song. And I want to say this before I even get into this, because this is really important foundation and teaching. Uh, in uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, you've probably heard this verse many times quoted, but it says, Faith is a substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. Well, I did a little studying in the Greek and because I wasn't really ever satisfied with that that translation. And um, as I uh, studied in the Greek, I found a better translation. I want to share this with you as we uh, look into today's podcast. A better translation would be that faith is the business transaction or title deed hoped for. And it is the objective proof of an unseen reality. It's really important to understand uh, before we look at these experiences with Song of Solomon and a lot of experiences that you may be having and that our families had is that you understand what objective proof is. Objective proof is that you have an encounter with the Lord. Um, I call them non-presumptuous encounters, meaning something that surprises you or takes you off guard and you know it's the Lord and he's speaking to you. It may be through a vision, a dream. He may uh, speak through an angelic encounter. He may come, uh, a bird may sing a song. You may see something on the TV. Uh, You may relate with him and and he may come to try to speak to you through so many different methods. But then to make it objective, you need it to agree with the word of God. And so the word will give you an encounter and then it'll match with uh, scripture. And then a lot of times, in that case, you, you've got two witnesses, but then a lot of times you'll have like a third party will come in and give another agreement on that. Now, when you have that as, as a believer, I believe what you have is objective proof. You have the scripture agreeing uh, first off with an encounter that Jesus has set up for you, and then you have someone else or another entity that makes an that agreement solid. And so you have two or three witnesses. I want to say that because it says that that faith is the objective proof of an unseen reality, meaning that this is a realm, the heavenly realm, that we cannot necessarily look into. Uh, it's not driven by the flesh, but it's driven by the spirit. And so, uh, but there needs to be a believing that that realm or that reality is more real than uh, the one that you're looking at with your with your eyes and uh, jesus said to nicodemus in john 3 says if i've told you of earthly things and you do not understand what, what will happen if i start to tell you of heavenly things you will not be able to comprehend them so 
it's just a fundamental value of, of these podcasts and what we're looking at is that we need objective proof of an unseen reality. Why? Because we've been called to bring heaven to earth. And so in bringing heaven to earth, meaning that now faith is the business transaction or the transaction in the earthly realm that is hoped for, but it has come from an objective proof of an unseen reality. So with that said, when I start to begin to talk to you about Song of Solomon, what I'm saying is is that my family's experience after we left the military and I got this word from Obadiah, we started going through a lot of pressure points, uh, difficulties, uh, trials, situations that were being set up in our life that uh, were testing our faith. And as we would come through saying yes to Jesus, we, we would come into a moment of adversity. And then that adversity would try us, and you'd just sense a sense of rest. And then would come this, what I'm talking about, this objective proof. So uh, the unseen reality would start to make itself known to us. Well, when I say uh, we had an encounter with every verse of the Song of Solomon this way, that's what I mean, that um, without knowing ahead of time, there would be, uh, the, the, a verse would come up after going through an experience and it would show us that we were on the right track and moving forward. Now, another really core component to uh, what I'm saying is, um, and it comes out of, I believe it's Matthew 3.17. It says uh, there that uh, a voice spake from heaven and he says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So what I'm dealing with in particular today is the beloved aspect of our relationship with the Lord. Another way you might say that is the priestly aspect. But the sense of being known to be loved by Him, that we He longs for us. And so, so when we're dealing with the Song of Solomon, it is a an eight-chapter allegory that is very prophetic and that our lives can get interact with that has to do with reinstating us knowing that we are loved by the Father. So we are be loved. And uh, later on as we get into this, because a lot of unpacking this awakening of the galactic progeny that I'm going to do with you is to unpack sonship as it relates to relationship with the Father. Right now we're going to deal with the beloved aspect of that. So with that said, I came to understand something. Uh, this may help you, but Song of Solomon is eight chapters, and the Lord started to show me that the first four chapters and the second four chapters w was to be broke up into two sections. And that the first four chapters had had to do with dealing with our relationship with Him and Him purifying us of the sin. And then in the next four chapters would deal with our iniquitous patterns as believers uh, to restore us or reinstate us uh, as adopted sons and daughters. And so he gave this to me, and, I, and again, this should be helpful for you if you've ever heard of the Dark Night of the Soul with St. John of the Cross. He was a Carmelite monk, and uh, he was around the 16th, I believe it was the 16th century. He There was a nun there with uh, him named St. Teresa of Avila. And if, if you want a really good resource, I would suggest uh, the Fire Within as a resource for this, to look into this by Thomas Dubay. He did this phenomenal poem called The Dark Night of the Soul. And in that, he separated uh, that dark night into two sections, the dark night of the sense and the dark night of the spirit. 
And what the Lord did for me is he overlaid the dark night of the sense in the first four chapters of Song of Solomon and the, and the dark night of the spirit in the next four chapters. So to get into a, a little bit of a story, my I would just say I'm so fleshly that I didn't realize that God was encountering us probably until about chapter 3 of Song of Solomon. And I started to perceive the heavenly dimension, the spiritual dimension, and I started seeing the verses and how that they were connected to one another in our personal life and the way we're living our life. And uh, by the time we had got to chapter 4 in our development, uh, I, I remember telling my wife, Kara, I said, hey, honey, I think I think we've... Uh, we were driving through the curves going to our house and i said i think we've got a chapter four in a song of solomon and so I, the lord brought this fire within book into my life and started to help me to understand the the dark night of the sense and like i said and um, john of the saint john of the cross talks about this phase that he said that most believers would get to that most believers would be raised to a place where they get through those first four chapters but many of them would uh, withdraw or back up or um, not go any further with the Lord. And uh, he called that the state of proficience. And he said that it had to do with the degree uh, upon which the Lord wished to raise them in holiness, their ministry assignment or calling, and their venial or their outward sins or sin issues that they had. And that if the Lord saw that he could take them on without it, without them failing or uh, losing their way, and that they would trust him, that he would allow them to move from the first four chapters there into, through the state of proficiency, into some more testing and trials. I'll tell you a story. I, I'm down with a couple of guys that they were working with me uh, in a, a company that I had, a general construction company called Tentmaker. We had went down to Oklahoma City, and this is the time when the words really start to speak to me about the state of proficiency. And I remember we were down in Oklahoma City, and I was in a hotel room, and I was on a fast. And I said to the Lord, I don't, I don't want to stay in the state of proficiency. I, I want out, and I want to go on with you. And um, I remember it just like it was yesterday, but the Holy Spirit speaks to me and says, Well, uh, you're really not going to like this. And I said, well, no, just bring it on. And he says, well, what I want you to do is I want you to give away your Suburban. And now you have to understand, uh, my wife and I have two or three kids at this time. And this vehicle that I have, it's the vehicle that I use to pull my equipment and run our construction company. And without it, we don't have a way to go anywhere or uh, have it, uh, we're not going to be able to this company that I thought he wanted me to build and I was really uh, quite troubled about it and um, he said well I want you to give it away to this particular pastor uh, so that night we went over to see a pastor that I had went down to Oklahoma City to see and I told my I told my two friends about this and I told them what had happened and we go to the pastor's house and I, I come down there to get this word from the Lord from from him and he's in there talking he's just a powerful man of God and he starts to say that the the Lord had made a promise to him and uh, that he was going to give him a white suburban now as soon as he said that my two friends were like 
looked at me and I put my finger up to my mouth like don't say a word because I don't want him to know and it what just happened that day because um, our suburban was white and he said that and there was a confirmation I tell you I never resisted something so much in my life because well my manhood was tied up in this my ability to provide for my family was tied up in this my our sense of well-being and security that I was trying to create in my family was tied up in this and it just it really scared me well we got back home from Oklahoma City and I didn't go through with it until um, about three months later and I told my wife and I said let's just pray about this and uh, and we did and and she agreed that it, it was from from the Lord so um, we decided we're going to do it I called uh, the pastor and I told him what we were going to do he he told me on the phone and I, I believe he's to be a man of integrity but he told me that that morning the Holy Spirit had woke him up and said today you will receive your white suburban well I'd like to tell you that things got better after that but really that invitation by faith really set up probably some of the next most difficult struggles that we would go through as a family and so let me back up a little bit here that what happens in the fire within and what you'll see is is that the lord starts to draw us through what they call discursive meditation it means where you take and you discourse with scripture in your worship time and the Lord had laid that also over the top of these first four. But he said, but when the Lord wants to take us further on, he will call us into something that they, the mystics called infused contemplation. And uh, I had been spending time in prayer and, and worshiping the Lord. But then there was this, uh, this transition point that started to happen. And, and so I started to learn about still quiet prayer in the secret place and I started to hear the Holy Spirit tell me to be quiet and quiet my mind down and not talk in prayer and listen, and listening prayer. And I want to say that is probably one of the most difficult things to do is uh, no worship, not necessarily coming before Scripture, just going into a place and being alone with Him and waiting until your mind literally stops thinking about things and starts to learn to pray. And listen to him while he talks to you. The next phase of our journey became became like that. So what will happen in effect is that you spend time with the Lord alone in quiet stillness. You wait until you basically quit thinking about things. Then all of a sudden, the Lord will start to um, speak to you. And if he doesn't speak to you in that in that contemplation, he will come to you and speak to you after that or, or and start to answer questions and things like that. Well, these moments, they, they're quite intense. And, and I'll tell you probably some of the, my greatest moments of understanding the Lord or getting to know Him came from uh, that contemplative prayer. Probably the most profound encounters I've ever had were, were out of that. Um, he said phrases to me that, that I know that can't be just made up or garnered out of my own mind because I didn't even know Him. Like, I'll just give you one. He said to me one day in this kind of contemplative prayer, uh, superlapsarianism. And I'm not going to go into what it is, but I'll tell you, it was an encounter with the Lord that really shifted my whole theological position and everything. But I didn't know that word, nor was I even briefed on it. So he may say things to you in that place of stillness that you otherwise may not get. Now, 
one of the things, and I want to give you this quote here, it comes from a Scottish Episcopalian, his name was Henry Scoogle, and he, he wrote a little book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. This book was given to, uh, it was given by George, we- um, George Wesley, John's brother, to uh, George Whitfield, the famous revivalist preacher. And so he gave him this little book, and it says that, and Schugel said these words, he said, that although many people thought of Christianity as orthodox notions and opinions or external duties or rapturous heats and ecstatic devotion, these impressions were mistaken. And he used this kind of language, true religion, and in that day, because this was written in uh, 1650 around to 1678 was when he lived he said though that true religion or christianity is the union of the soul with god it's a real participation of the divine nature the very image of god drawn upon the soul this work from school it became very important to me during this time because he started to separate out just putting everything into orthodox doctrine and and notions about that or just having these ecstatic charismatic uh events happen rather that god was seeking union with man and that he was going to come and bring a real participation of his nature into us the very image of himself drawn upon the soul so um, I want to like give a couple things here, and this will I think this will help you just in the Song of Solomon. There are four transition statements in the uh, the psalm, song, and I think this will be very helpful to you. But in so- Song of Psalms uh, one, verse thirteen and fourteen, the bride she says, "My beloved is to me," and when you start your journey with him, usually uh, we have a little regard for him particularly but we have more regard for what we're getting out of our relationship with him Uh, she says my beloved is to me she's speaking about him calling him the beloved but what is it that she gets out of that and much of our relationship starts out like that and then later on there's a second transition statement in 216 and she says my beloved is mine and i am his She's saying, he is mine, he belongs to me, I have rights to him. However, I'm coming to realize that that I also belong to him. So this is a new aspect of her relationship with him that it's not just about what I get out of it, but I'm starting to realize that I belong to him and that he's getting something and this has become a concern in my maturity. So when we're talking about that first four chapters, this these are the two overarching concepts in them. My beloved is to me, and my beloved is mine, and I am his. But as we move into this second, let's call it the dark night of the spirit, or we call it the infused contemplation, or the second set of four coming out of the state of proficience, there's a change. Watch this in Song of Psalms 6.3. She says, I am my beloved's, and he is mine. So now uh, she switched it to I belong to him and he is mine instead of him being mine and then I am his now I am my beloved's and he is mine so she's reversed the priority now she realizes it's more important for him to have his inheritance and so the order has been reversed and that her own inheritance is vital yet it's secondary 
what she gets out of the deal. And then this culmination comes up in uh, chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's and his desire is towards me. Now she's saying this, I am my beloved's. He owns me entirely. And that all that I care about is whatever pleases him. This really struck me because in the Genesis account, if you'll remember, in the curse with Eve and, and with Adam, but the word pronounces his curse over Eve, and he says, And your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Well, when that word desire is used there in the Hebrew, it's the same word here in uh, chapter 7, verse 10, that his desire is towards me. What, in effect, she is saying is, and let me say this, none of us really like to be controlled. Nobody likes to be boxed in. We all want to be able to do whatever we want to with our time. We have this whole kind of life going on here in America, those of us that are in America, that, you know, it's my inalienable rights. I can do what I want to with my life. And so she's saying something that's very radical and hostile, uh, really, to today's idea. She's saying, and his desire is towards me. What she is, in effect, saying is he wants to control me, and I'm in agreement that that's the best thing for me. I want to be taken over by God. I don't want my life to be my own anymore. I'm not even concerned about what deal I get out of this. That means if I put everything on the line for him and I end up with nothing, or if I end up with everything, that it was worth, it's completely worth it to me. And if I feel like that I, I'm stuck and I'm being backed into a corner and there's nowhere for me to go, I'm completely content with that now. When Paul said, you know, contentment with godliness is great gain. He said that he had learned to be, to be abased and to abound. He knew a place in his soul where it didn't matter that to be boxed in and that this was what has happened in her heart. And I will tell you that it is no small feat for you or me as a believer to get to a place where we say, all of me is for you, Lord. And that if you want to control my life, I'm giving you full rights. That I agree with it now. I'm not like passively looking for something for myself. I'm not trying to get out on this deal and get away from it. I'm going deeper and deeper into a place in relationship with you where I'm seeing that objective proof of an unseen reality. I'm agreeing with it. You know, to the chagrin, uh, culturally, socially, familially, financially, ethnically. I'm going to a place where maybe misunderstanding to everybody, but all I want is you, Jesus. And I'm willing to go, go with it all the way. This really sets up what's going to happen in her life for the, the fire to burn. One of the things that happened from this, and this is really important that, you know, I'm going to finish right here with this today. There's a, a verse that comes right at the very end here of Song of Solomon. And I really think it has to do with this last end time move of God that he's that is coming on the earth. And we, we had got through, uh, you know, verse 713. And, of course, I, I don't know when the next verse is going to come in to being in 714. And I remember I'd, I'd went up to my parents' house and I was on the second floor and I was looking out the window. And the Lord says to me, he said, I'm going to bring in a new... I'm going to bring in a new order, and I'm going to cause a, a work of God to come into the earth like you've never seen. No one's ever seen this. It's a new thing. 
I, you know, was thinking about that. And, and he said, I want to tell you about the old order a little bit. And I said, well, well what would you what would you call the old? And he said, well, he said, like, um, he used these names like A.A. A. Allen. And I said, A.A. A. Allen? He said, yeah. And uh, he said, uh, Catherine Kuhlman. And I was like, Catherine Kuhlman? That's, that's the old order? And he said, yeah, that's the old order. And he said, uh, and then he says to me, he says, Billy Graham. And I said, Billy Graham, the greatest evangelist that ever touched the soul of the world? He's like, yeah, that's the old order. And I'm thinking, you know, in my mind is like, if that's the old order, what is the new one? What is that about? He spoke to me, he says, you know, one day Billy Graham's going to die. And when he does, it's going to signal the shift to a new order that I'm going to bring onto the earth. Well, I had this encounter with the Lord, and so I, did, I go back from my parents' house and, and our house. They're on the same mountain in Saluda, and I go up to my house, and, and I'm in the kitchen, and my wife, she says, uh, Carol, what is that wonderful smell? And I said, oh, I don't know. I don't really smell anything. And she said, oh, it smells so good. Now, you have to understand my wife. Now, she, she can smell. Her ability to smell and is really... Uh, <laughs> She can just smell anything, and sometimes that's good, sometimes not good. But I knew if she was smelling something, it had to that she really was. And and uh, she reaches down, she puts her nose on my my skin, on my chest, and she said, "There's a fragrance coming off your skin that smells so wonderful." And uh, you put on cologne and things like that, asking me. I said, "No." I knew that if there was something coming off of me that, that smelled good, that had to come from God. <laughs> but she said it, and I think she knew that too. And I'm standing there, and the Holy Spirit speaks to me, and he says the next verse, Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 14, the mandrakes have given off a fragrance, and over our door is every choice fruit, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my lover. And the word says, there it is. And I said, you know, and I'm a little dense and it takes me a little time to understand God. But he said, you see that this work has been stored up and it's both new and old. And I'm going to cause a new move to happen on the earth. And, you know, and I've heard Mike Bickle say this, but it's going to change the expression of Christianity in one generation. There is a move. And, that, you know, we all call it different things. I, the Holy Spirit's told me to call it the awakening of the galactic progeny. But there is a move coming on the earth. And uh, I hope, like today, going through this, is, that this podcast has been an encouragement to you. Uh, that maybe you find yourself, and I, you know, I really challenge you, take, um, take some resources like commentaries like uh, uh, Song of Solomon. Madame Guyon has some work on that. I believe a Watchman Nee. Mike Bickle, of course, has a, a phenomenal commentary on this book. But take some time with this and meditate with it. And uh, maybe you'll find yourself like we did in this uh, divine work of the Holy Spirit as he's working uh, things out in your life.
And our eyes have been on.